We are podcasting today in the light of the full moon. Tons of witchcraft books and like a Ouija board in her house, but so do you. I understand it, but I also hate it. I want to know the answer. There isn't one. Sorry. Let's speculate wildly, baby. This is Drinking the Kool-Aid, a comedy podcast dedicated to the mysterious. I'm Cassidy. And I'm Amanda. And every week we tell you two tantalizing stories. We cover anything from conspiracy theories to true crime to alien to the paranormal and beyond. So if you like spooky stuff, make sure you catch us every single Wednesday wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. But most importantly, make sure you keep your front door locked. Make sure you keep your mind open. And and keep keep drinking the Kool-Aid. The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels, roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. Oh boy, can't get enough of the live shows, so I asked my friends to get together in Atlanta. Nina of the Already Gone podcast and Charlie of Crime Lines are really killing it in the planning game, and I can't wait to just participate in something this cool. You can learn more about True Crime Live Atlanta happening December 3rd, 2022 from 7 to 10 p.m. by clicking the link in the show notes. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases with Lainey. We may have a new name, but we'll still be bringing you the same quality of podcast and the same high level of respect for the victims of true crime, as always. Digital forensics, which used to be called computer forensics, is relatively new to the world of crime scene investigation, only originating in the 1980s. Digital forensics didn't gain speed until the 1990s, during the tech bubble where exponentially more people gained access to the internet and purchased home computers. Companies were financially motivated by this rapidly growing consumer market to start creating computer hardware and software at light speed. Spurred on by the technology boom, people across the world also began pursuing technology as a professional career, and the tech field suddenly experienced a massive influx of money and industry experts. Technology advanced, and by 2000, the computers that used to be slow, expensive, and bulky were significantly faster, more affordable, and easier to understand. Subsequently, digital forensics became commonplace. But back in the 80s, police didn't know how to handle computers, let alone the data stored on them. There weren't training programs for CSI digital forensic specialists, and on many occasions when law enforcement were given a computer for evidence, they would simply not even attempt to look into the machine. When crimes involved computers, investigators asked their friends who were technology hobbyists to help them with that particular element. The former director of the National Center for Forensic Science, Kerry Morgan Whitcomb, recalled his colleagues being nervous to accept a computer as evidence. Whitcomb recorded the concerns police had. How do you secure and preserve the evidence on a computer? How do you collect it without changing it? What are the accepted practices related to computer evidence that would stand the scrutiny of court? What are the examination protocols? It was technology that we did not know how to handle in the crime laboratory. Today, digital forensics is an integral part of crime scene investigations. 
Police organizations dedicate entire departments to it, and people can study it at universities. Even the words digital forensics versus the outdated term computer forensics is indicative of how times have changed, as digital forensics includes any information that is stored in binary form, not just computers. Now we have smartphones, tablets, smartwatches, and more digital devices that can contain useful information for a criminal investigation. And these are all covered by digital forensics. Countless crimes have been solved thanks to these modern advancements. In 2009, the Craigslist killer murdered a young woman in her Boston hotel room and assaulted a second woman at gunpoint. Through traced emails and correlating IP addresses, Specialists discovered the perpetrator, 23-year-old Philip Markov, a med student who no one had any reason to suspect. In 2007, the lead prosecutor for the Maine Attorney General's office, James Cameron, was flagged by Yahoo because he had been sending, receiving, and possessing child sex abuse material using at least 17 different Yahoo profiles. Even though Cameron used special software programs to wipe his computer clean of the damning images, the FBI were able to use different software to recover the evidence. And, perhaps most famously, Dennis Rader, a serial killer better known as BTK, was captured using digital forensics. Between 1974 and 1991, Rader killed at least 10 people in Kansas by binding, torturing, and killing his victims. Three actions whose initials led him to being given the name BTK. Throughout Raider's reign of terror, he would send taunting letters to the police, confident they would never find him. But when Raider sent investigators a floppy disk, they were able to trace it to a church where Raider was president of the congregation. Clearly, digital forensics has come a long way, but it had to learn how to walk before it could run, and it took its very first steps in the case of Sally Weiner. According to FBI Special Agent Al Johnson, Sally's landmark case was the genesis of what computer forensics is now. Her case was where computer forensics was born. Okay, on to the show. Sally Elaine Stowe was born on May 4, 1951, in the city of Erie, Pennsylvania, located on the south shore of Lake Erie. The town is picturesque, with a beautiful lakeshore view and green trees everywhere, and is home to a population of about 100,000 people. Not much information is available about Sally's childhood, but it appears she remained in Erie for most of her life growing up. At some point in her 20s, Sally met a man named Harry Weiner, and just like the romantic comedy when Harry met Sally, they fell in love. Around 1975, 24-year-old Sally married Harry, changing her last name to his. According to Harry, he and Sally had a very happy marriage, the two considering themselves typical Americans. Together, the couple had a son and daughter who were only a few years apart in age. Sally was quiet and family-oriented, according to those close to her, known for being devoted to her family and loving her children dearly. Harry was a longtime employee of Penn Bank, which is just what it sounds like, a Pennsylvania bank. In 1987, the Weiner family moved from Erie to Cory, Pennsylvania, 
so that Harry could manage the quarry branch of Penn Bank located in the town plaza. Only about an hour's drive apart, Cory is considered to be a suburb of the Erie metropolitan area and is significantly smaller than Erie with only 6,000 people to Erie's 100,000. Harry and Sally were devout people and it was important for them to find a congregation as soon as they could after relocating. So, their family joined the First Presbyterian Church in Cory. Harry and Sally also believed in helping out the community and as such, Sally soon joined the Parent Teacher Association and Harry led a United Way campaign. After living in Cory for about a year, the Weiner family was already off to a great start in their new home. They had a successful marriage, two elementary school-aged children, an active church-going lifestyle, and a desire to support their community. It was the stereotypical American dream, a white picket fence being all they needed to complete the picture. But on June 16, 1988, Everything changed when Sally received a telephone call from an unknown man. The man said he was with the Erie office of U.S. Representative Thomas Ridge, and during this call, he claimed that Representative Ridge wanted to throw a luncheon in honor of Harry. According to this unknown man, Harry was receiving an award for his outstanding civic engagement in the Cory community, and he asked Sally if she would meet with him the next day to help him plan the luncheon. Before he hung up, the man told Sally in no uncertain terms that she should not tell Harry about their plans to meet. After all, the man said, the award and luncheon were going to be a surprise. Sally agreed and made plans to meet the man around 1 p.m. in the parking lot of the Christian Missionary and Alliance Church. It was near the same town plaza where Harry's bank was, along with some other shops. Sally was elated. Harry was a respected pillar of the community, so it made sense that someone would want to recognize his hard work. And although Sally had promised the man on the phone that she wouldn't tell Harry, she did anyway, because he was her husband and she was so proud of him. So, of course, she was going to share the good news. That evening, she told Harry about the phone call, how Representative Ridge wanted to honor him and her upcoming meeting in the church parking lot. The next day, on June 17th, Sally headed to the church parking lot and arrived at 1 p.m., in anticipation of the meeting as planned. Sadly, 37-year-old Sally was never seen again. Later that afternoon, Harry received a telephone call from an unknown man who identified himself only as Bill Johnson. During the call, Harry could hear Sally speaking, but when he attempted to respond, he quickly realized she wasn't at the other end of the line he was listening to a tape recording of Sally's voice. In the recording, Sally stated that she had been kidnapped and was being held at gunpoint. She explained that she feared for her life if Harry didn't follow the kidnapper's instructions, saying that these were dangerous people and they would kill her if Harry didn't give them money. According to Mike Hudson, a former reporter for the Cory newspaper, Sally had to read that if her husband didn't come up with the money, they'd cut off her hands. At the direction of her kidnapper, Sally told Harry to go to the parking lot outside of the bank and find a blue bag, which contained further instructions. Terrified for his wife's well-being, Harry did as he was told, and inside the bag he found a ransom note. The note read, Follow our instructions exactly, or your family will die. Exactly was spelled wrong, with an extra E before the Y. The rest of the letter said, 
If you do not follow our orders, we will kill her, and we will not be quick to kill her. She will die a slow, painful, and horrible death. We will take days to torture her, and we will finish by cutting her into many pieces, and you'll never find enough to bury. So if you want your wife to live, do exactly as we say. Again, exactly was misspelled with an extra E before the Y. The note proceeded to give Harry painstakingly detailed instructions. Harry was supposed to pick up two walkie-talkies from a nearby Radio Shack store, which were waiting for him at the register under his name. Then, Harry needed to set the walkie-talkies to a specific frequency. One walkie-talkie was for the kidnapper to listen to Harry, and the other was for the kidnapper to speak to Harry. After purchasing and configuring the walkie-talkies, Harry was to tape down the speak button on one of them to allow the kidnapper to constantly hear Harry, and the kidnapper would provide further instructions to Harry via the second walkie-talkie. This was a long list of instructions for Harry to follow in order to avoid his wife's slow, torturous death, and there were still more to come. Next, the kidnapper's note directed Harry to go back to the bank and fill the blue bag, which originally held the ransom note with money. The kidnapper wanted Harry to take 90% of the cash stored at the bank, beginning with $100 bills, then $50 bills, then 20s, then 10s. When he had finished all of these tasks, Harry had to drive 10 miles out of town on Route 89, where he would go to a railroad underpass and wait for further instructions to be relayed to him through his walkie-talkie. The kidnapper specified that Harry would need to be there by 9 p.m. that evening and concluded the note with, We will be watching you all the time. Remember, if you are followed, or you don't follow our instructions, your wife will start suffering and dying. Call the cops or screw with us, and all will die. Even though these threats were menacing, Harry was a smart man. He knew he needed help, and ignoring the note's threats, Harry called the vice president of Penn Bank, the bank security office, local police, state police, and the FBI. Something investigators immediately noticed about the note was that it wasn't handwritten. Instead, it was typed out and printed onto computer paper. Today, that wouldn't be out of the ordinary, but in 1988, it was an anomaly as a mere 8.2% of American households had computers according to the U.S. Census. They were huge, pricey machines and the internet as we know it didn't exist yet, so hardly anyone could justify the expense of owning private computers. If you needed a computer, you could go somewhere and pay a fee to use it. But somehow, the person who had typed this ransom letter had access to a computer without fear of anyone looking over their shoulder. The consistent misspelling of exactly in the ransom letter also stood out to detectives. After authorities conferred with each other and Harry, they came up with a plan. Harry was going to follow the kidnapper's instructions and carry out every task the note outlined in the hopes that the kidnapper would return Sally unharmed. That meant Harry would rob the very same bank he managed, but surprisingly, the bank was fine with this. Apparently, most banks have plans in place for this type of kidnap and ransom situation, and the president of Penn Bank, Thomas Doolin, told the media that the banks in Erie have a long-standing belief that if a staff member or one of their family members was kidnapped for a large cash ransom, all the major banks would join together to meet the demand. So, Harry followed the ransom note's instructions to a T. 
He purchased the walkie-talkies. He taped the correct button down. He retrieved the money, and he drove to the railroad underpass to wait for further instructions. But in direct opposition to the kidnapper's instructions, Harry was not alone. The railroad underpass was in a rural and wooded area, so FBI agents had arrived at the location hours earlier and hidden in the brush and trees. According to Kim Kelly, one of the FBI agents who was laying in wait for Sally's kidnapper, they suspected that the kidnapper was hidden nearby and probably watching Harry, trying to judge if he could be trusted. The FBI agents listened for any noise that would indicate the kidnapper was moving, twigs breaking or footsteps, so they could spring into action and capture the suspect. But 9 p.m. came and went, without the kidnapper making contact with Harry over the walkie-talkie. There was no indication to the FBI agents present that anyone had left a hiding place either. So, after two hours, Harry left. Agent Kelly said, I felt very sorry for him. Harry was a good person. He was frustrated and he was being very patient and he was reasonable. At this point, investigators didn't have much to work with. They had found Sally's two-tone blue Ford Escort wagon parked in the same church parking lot where she had disappeared from, but there was no sign of a struggle. Harry told police officers that he couldn't imagine anyone wanting to harm Sally. She had no enemies, and like him, she was a pillar of the Cory community. With no leads, investigators realized they needed help, and they were left with one option. On the afternoon of June 18th, they took the case to the public. They told the media and citizens of Cory everything. Harry had received a call from a kidnapper who was holding Sally for ransom, and although he had followed the ransom letter's instructions, the kidnapper had not met with him. The authorities encouraged people to report anything suspicious, submit tips, sightings, anything that might lead them closer to Sally's whereabouts. Understandably, the general public was shocked at the news of Sally's disappearance. This was a small town, and the crime just seemed so unusual, and especially unlikely outside of a bigger city. Later, District Attorney Brad Folk would say, You can count on just a couple of fingers the number of cases where you've seen a bank employee's family member is abducted for financial gain. It just is not a common crime. The Penn Bank president, Thomas Doolin, told the media, In one way, this thing looks to be well-organized, and in another way, it looks amateurish. This is a tiny little branch office in a tiny little community, so it's hard to figure out why this has all taken place. And Doolin had a good point. If someone was going to try to rob a bank, wouldn't it make sense to choose a bigger bank that served more people? Even the banks in nearby Erie would have had more cash on hand than the relatively small town of Cory. Despite his apprehension, President Doolin continued to reiterate that Penn Bank would support the Weiner family. He said, Money you can replace. Human life you cannot. Our number one priority is to gain her release and get her back safely. Unfortunately, Sally would never be released, safely or otherwise.
early morning of June 19th, two days after she was kidnapped, Sally's body was discovered in a densely wooded area about five miles northwest of Cory. A farmer found her on his property in a clearing located by a gas well. Sally was still wearing the same clothes she was last seen in, but her purse was missing. According to local authorities, 37-year-old Sally had been executed. She had been shot once at point-blank range in the back of the head, with the killer using either a .357 caliber magnum or a .38 caliber pistol. There were no other wounds, bruises, or marks on her body. Recalling the news, Sally's brother James Stowe said, I remember being in shock. I felt guilty and helpless. Sally's murderer used a glazer bullet to kill Sally. According to Shooting Illustrated, glazer bullets are jacketed hollow-point bullets, which basically means they explode inside a person after impact. Bullets like these have the additional effect of making it difficult to determine what type of gun fired the bullet. According to the medical examiner, the bullet entered Sally's occipital lobe, which is at the base of a person's skull, and the bullet then exploded, causing massive brain damage. A pathologist determined that Sally died at some point between midnight on June 17th and 2 p.m. on June 18th. It was possible, according to the pathologist, that Sally's brainstem was not completely destroyed by the gunshot, and that Sally may have lingered in a coma before dying. However, the pathologist clarified that if Sally had slipped into a coma, she was most likely unconscious, and mercifully, she would not have felt pain. A forensic entomologist studied the insects in and around Sally's body and narrowed the window of Sally's death to between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. on June 17th. Later at trial, the prosecution would combine the two experts' opinions, theorizing that Sally was shot between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. on June 17th, but may have been briefly comatose before dying. Law enforcement officers were desperate to find Sally's killer, and the public was understandably terrified. Who would hurt someone in their small town, let alone someone like the quiet, helpful mother of two that was Sally Weiner? During their investigative procedure, police suddenly had a stroke of genius and requested a list of people that had been denied loans at the bank Harry managed. One of the names on the list stood out for a number of reasons, and that name was David Kopenheffer. That December, David had applied for two business loans, both of which totaled $25,000, worth $63,000 today. He owned a bookstore and wanted to use the first business loan to expand it. The second business loan would have been used to open a Rack's fast food franchise. Rack's is similar to Arby's, selling primarily roast beef sandwiches. Harry's Bank denied both of David's loan requests. Another reason David stood out to investigators was because of something that happened two months after his loan was denied. In February, David tried to cash a $60,000 insurance check after a house fire, but because the check was from a different state, Harry refused to cash it. This wasn't necessarily Harry's decision, as it was the policy at Penn Bank not to cash out-of-state checks. Still, David left the encounter feeling angry at Harry. Both of these incidents led investigators to look into David Kopenheffer further. David Carl Kopenheffer was born on July 24, 1947, in Troy, Ohio. Troy is a rural town in Miami County, 30 minutes north of Dayton, an area known for pretty tree-lined streets and well-kept houses. According to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, 
David had a middle-class upbringing and didn't want for anything. His father founded the Copenhagen Meatpacking Company when David was 16 years old, a business that was reasonably successful until the Copenhagen family sold it following the death of David's father in 1975. David's mother was a publicist for a milk company and served as Republican County Chairwoman for years. She also ran for the Ohio House of Representatives in 1972, but was not elected. Not much is known about David's childhood years, but as a teen, David found himself in some trouble and had several juvenile offenses to his name. He also developed a strong interest in guns, beginning what would become a huge gun collection at the age of 16. David even spent two years learning how to be a gunsmith in Golden, Colorado, and in his adult years, he made his own ammunition. Somewhere along the way, David also became interested in the technology market. In 1970, 23-year-old David managed a political campaign in Montgomery County for Republican Roger Cloud, who was running for Ohio State Governor against the incumbent Jim Rhodes. If Cloud won, David hoped to use his personal connection with the new Ohio governor to gain a contract to repair the state's government's computers. It's likely that David was planning to use this potential contract to launch a computer firm, but Cloud lost the election and David did not get a computer repair contract from the state of Ohio. However, that didn't deter David. He was determined to get his computer firm up and running, which was a smart move in 1970 with the tech boom of the 1980s just over the horizon. David traveled to the ITT Technical Institute in Dayton, Ohio, and he contacted the Institute's placement office in the hopes of hiring a partner for his computer firm. In November of 1970, the Institute connected David to a man named John Calkins. Calkins was an Air Force veteran and a very devout Catholic. John's mother taught at a Catholic school, his sister was a nun, and John himself had actually planned to become a priest, even going to seminary school. But it didn't work out. At the time John met David, John was engaged to be married. Tragically, before David and John could begin their computer firm, John was brutally murdered. On January 8, 1971, John was shot nine times in the back of the head, neck, chest, and torso with a 38 caliber gun. His neck was nearly severed by the bullet wounds, and his head had been run over by a car. The day after John died, his body was discovered in his car on a county road in Bath Township, Ohio, just outside of Akron. Three days before John's death, Seven accidental death insurance policies were taken out in John's name. These policies made it so that when he was killed, John was insured for $550,000, which adds up to over $4 million today. John's new business partner, David Copenheffer, had purchased all seven of the insurance policies for John, and perhaps unsurprisingly, David was listed as a beneficiary on six out of the seven policies. One policy for $100,000, which is over $700,000 in today's money, went to John's father, but the rest went to David. Not to John's fiance, not to John's mother or sister, to his brand new business partner, David. Of the seven policies David had purchased, John only knew about two of them. As you might imagine, David looked guilty of killing his business partner for insurance money, and that's because David probably was guilty of killing his business partner for insurance money. 
At trial, prosecutors theorized that David had never wanted to open a computer firm with John and that the whole business venture was a charade, concocted as a front so David could find a victim, take out life insurance policies on them, and murder them. The prosecution showed the court that David was in a bad financial situation and needed money. But besides a clear motive, the prosecution didn't have anything on David. There were no witnesses, no murder weapons, and no ballistics. And since it was 1971, DNA evidence didn't exist yet. No evidence tied David to the crime, and therefore David was eventually acquitted. The prosecutor for John's murder told the Dayton Daily News, I always felt it in my own heart that David was guilty. He's a psychopath. He's smart. He's intelligent. He does things and knows what he's doing, and he shows no remorse. Another prosecuting lawyer told reporters, I've always felt very badly about that case. I guess it shows if you do a crime right, you can get away with it. David's intelligence was apparent to many, including his own defense attorney. His lawyer said, Of the three people at the council table, David probably had the highest IQ. He was the classic underachiever, frustrated at every turn in life. And yet, as smart as David was, he hadn't read the insurance policies closely enough. Only two of the seven insurance policies were in effect by the time of John's murder. So, while David was able to collect one $50,000 insurance payout, the other five insurance policies weren't yet in effect. After going to all that effort, he hadn't waited long enough to murder John. Around this time, David married a woman named Patricia, and in 1979, David, now 32, and Patricia had one son. The family lived in Greenfield, Ohio for many years, during which time David was active with the Greenfield Republican Club. His wife, Patricia, was active with the Greenfield Area Christian Center, which was primarily a food and clothing bank. They were a religious family and went to church at the First Presbyterian Church of Greenfield. David worked as a materials manager at Hoover Universal, an automotive industry supplier, for five years. According to his co-workers, David was fired because he mistakenly ordered a part that cost the company a lot of money. And after this, David struggled to keep a job. At one point, he managed a grocery store, but that didn't last long as, within a year, David was unemployed again. Sometime around August of 1987, the Copenheffer's home caught fire and was severely damaged. Apparently, a fluorescent light fixture in David's ammunition room was left on, and by a stroke of supposed bad luck, the hot fixture fell on David's gunpowder supplies, igniting them and causing $71,000 in damage. Conveniently, David's family was on vacation when the fire broke out. David's insurance company paid him $60,000, which is $165,000 in today's money. No one suspected David of insurance fraud this time, but it's easy to wonder about his intentions after John's mysterious murder. It looks like it could be a pattern. David needed money, and through the power of insurance, David received money. In September 1987, a month after the fire, the Copenheffer family moved to Cory, Pennsylvania. They picked Cory because their favorite pastor from the First Presbyterian Church of Greenfield had taken a job at the First Presbyterian of Cory, and they became familiar with the area as they visited the pastor on numerous occasions. David's wife Patricia later told the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette 
that they were impressed by Corey and liked the school system. She said, We weren't happy where we were living. We weren't going to stay there. It wasn't the town we wanted to raise our son in. This is more like Troy, where David grew up. Patricia told one of her church friends that she appreciated Corey's low crime rate, since, at the time, the last Corey homicide had occurred two years previously, in 1985. So, life began anew for the Copenhavers. David and Patricia started running the local bookshop and card store, which was located in the same town plaza as Harry Weiner's bank. They also became members of the First Presbyterian of Corey Congregation, which just so happened to be the same church that Harry and Sally attended. According to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the Copenhavers and Weiners were social acquaintances. They worked on a project called Marriage Encounter Together, which was an initiative intended to make Christian marriages stronger. You may recall hearing about this in the Wiley Axe Murder episode. They also sang hymns together. Both sat in pews not far from each other at the church. But the relationship between the Copenhavers and Winers was sometimes tense. In fact, the Winers left the First Presbyterian Church of Corey after having philosophical differences with some of the other churchgoers, including the Copenhavers, and began attending the Corey Missionary Alliance instead. David's wife Patricia said, Certain people want a church run their way. Either you leave, you accept it, or it changes. The Winers had decided it wasn't what they wanted. Patricia added, I didn't like what Sally said at times, and she didn't like what I said at times, but that was okay. There was no anger, animosity, no hard feelings. Jump forward once more to June of 1988, when investigators were looking into David Copenheffer's role in the kidnapping and murder of Sally Weiner. Harry had denied two of David's business loan applications, and to add insult to injury, it was also Harry who refused to cash David's house fire insurance check. David's family and Harry's family knew each other reasonably well, and while they were polite with one another, they didn't like each other. At this time, police weren't sure if it was enough of a motive to justify killing Sally, but it was enough to make it worth questioning David and Patricia Copenheffer. Officers went to talk with David and Patricia about Sally's death, meeting up with the Copenheffers at their bookstore in the town plaza. While there, investigators noticed something strange on the bookstore's window, a computer-printed paper with a strange decorative border. The symbols were asterisks bracketed by greater than and less than signs, repeated over and over, and were similar to the symbols present on the paper of the ransom note. Immediately, the Copenheffers became the lead suspects in Sally's kidnapping and murder. Once investigators began looking into David further, they very quickly found enough evidence to arrest him on kidnapping charges while searching the trash outside of David's bookstore. In this trash, the investigators found torn-up drafts of the ransom note, and so around 2.30 a.m. on June 20th, 40-year-old David Copenheffer was arrested in his home. He was charged with one count of kidnapping, one count of attempted robbery, and one count of attempted extortion. Although Sally's body had been recovered a day earlier, David wouldn't face murder charges until later. Patricia was also considered a suspect, but she was not arrested at this time. Although officers did take a sample of her hair, blood, handwriting, and fingerprints. When David arrived at the police station, he waived his Miranda rights and chose to speak candidly with detectives. 
he spoke openly about where he was on the evening of June 17th, telling them he was at the bookstore by 5.20 p.m., after which he claimed he had been at the store then his home up until the time he was arrested. But David couldn't account for his time on the afternoon of June 17th, when Sally had been kidnapped. He refused to say anything about that time period, asking to talk with his lawyer instead. Patricia didn't realize that the unique symbols on the sign in her bookstore window was what led to the authorities to suspect David's involvement. She told the media that she thought the police had run background checks on everyone who worked near the church parking lot where Sally disappeared. So when they saw that David had a criminal history with John's murder in 1971, he became their number one suspect. Patricia told the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, It's normal police procedure when something happens like this to do a background check on all the people in the shopping plaza, and they found out about the incident in 1971. They're doing what they did in 71. He's a likely scapegoat, and circumstantial evidence is pointing towards him, so forget about everything else. And Patricia had a second theory. After the police went public with Sally's kidnapping, she and David called their state trooper friend named Charles to try and give him some information on the case. Patricia told the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, What we knew was not earth-shaking. All we had heard was if you had information to call them. We thought we'd go through our friend and he could decide whether it was something viable, rather than us going to the station. She said that may have made her and David look suspicious. Patricia's theories, while interesting, were wrong. It was the unique typeface border David used on both the bookstore sign and the ransom note that gave him away. However, she was right in one respect. Their state trooper friend, Charles, actually did find his conversation with the Copenheffers highly suspicious. According to Charles, David offered to help investigate Sally's abduction, claiming he could provide information about Sally's kidnapping, but was reluctant to get involved with the police and federal agents. This unnerved Charles, as if David could really give any information, big or small, that might help save the life of an innocent woman, why would he hesitate? Charles reported the conversation to other law enforcement the second David left his home, and they confirmed Charles's suspicion, saying that David was already a suspect. They asked Charles to arrange a second meeting with David, and later that evening, an FBI agent and state police officer waited in Charles's house. When David, Patricia, and their son arrived, the agent and officer questioned David, after which the Copenheffers were released. Yet, as already stated, David was later arrested. Authorities then searched his home and bookstore, where they discovered a wealth of evidence to signal his guilt. Investigators discovered David hadn't written just one ransom note for Harry. He'd written at least four additional ones, which were planted all around Corey in a strange kind of scavenger hunt. The notes were tied to thin metal poles and marked with long white crepe streamer paper, and would have given Harry further instructions on how to save Sally but according to on-scene authorities, Harry never found the second ransom note at the railroad underpass. It was too well hidden, and David never contacted Harry with the walkie-talkie to help Harry find it. Police tracked down the four additional ransom notes, one of which said, We are heavily armed with submachine guns, automatic pistols, grenades, and an M16, and we will kill everyone if you screw up. Any cops, and she dies. Any bugging devices, she dies. Don't drive over 30 miles an hour. 
Maybe David didn't want Harry to get a speeding ticket and then speak with a police officer. Another note the police found insinuated that the kidnapper had killed before, which might have been referencing the murder of John. David's fingerprints were found to match the prints pulled from the original ransom note. And later, when he completed a handwriting sample, he misspelled exactly, just as a kidnapper had, with an extra E before the Y. As well as the additional ransom notes, police found a stack of steel rods behind David's home, which matched the type of rod used to plant the notes around Corey. Meanwhile, inside David's home, investigators discovered a roll of white crepe paper featuring a tear, which, once analyzed alongside one of the crepe streamers on the ransom notes, was found to be a match. In David's trash, along with the discarded drafts of the original ransom note, officers located to-do list outlining the kidnapping and inventories of items used during the kidnapping. Some of the items listed included radios, handcuffs, and tape recorder. The tread marks from David's vehicle also matched the tread marks at the same location where Sally's body was found. In connection with the murder scene, police found a collection of guns in David's home, including high-powered automatic rifles, just as one of the kidnapping notes had described. Multiple guns were loaded and cocked, including four that were loaded with the same glacier ammunition used to execute Sally. Ballistics testing later revealed two 357 caliber Magnum pistols that could have been used in the murder. On David's pants, police discovered a piece of human flesh and remnants of glazer ammo, and green duct tape found on Sally's body matched a roll of green duct tape at David's house, which further connected him to the scene. But the most damning piece of evidence came from David's two home computers, since the ransom notes had been printed rather than handwritten. Even though David had attempted to delete the files from his computers, investigators knew they had a shot to recover them. When anyone deletes a file on their computer, it doesn't actually disappear until it's overridden with other information. And even then, it doesn't disappear all at once, but more so in fragments. That meant that parts of David's deleted files still existed on his computers. Today, recovering deleted files from a computer hard drive is fairly easy. Tech companies design software specifically intended to reassemble the fragments of deleted documents. In the words of Larry Dombrowski, chief county detective for Sally's case, a computer is about as secure as a wet paper bag. It never throws data away. But in 1988, the process to recover deleted files was brutal, as there was no specialized forensic software available to help assemble the documents, and FBI agents had to parse through the code manually. And FBI Special Agent Al Johnson said, It was a painstaking process that took approximately 33 days to look at two 20-megabyte hard drives. According to Johnson, it was worth it, as investigators were eventually able to recover 80% of the deleted files from David's hard drives. Johnson said, The digital evidence connected the computer to the man, to the ransom notes, to the crime. One of the recovered documents explained David's entire kidnapping plan in 22 bullet points, and based on this document, investigators discovered that David had also planned on killing Harry Weiner after retrieving the ransom. In the deleted files, the agents even found drafts of David's original phone call to Sally, where he told her Harry had won an award to arrange their meeting. There were drafts of the tape recording David made Sally say at gunpoint, which Harry had heard over the phone. Overall, 
the police had David dead to rights. Later, a judge wrote, Having served on this court for nearly 20 years, I can truthfully say that I cannot recall a case where the evidence against a defendant was stronger than the evidence against David Copenhafer. Still, one question remained unanswered. Why didn't David contact Harry with a walkie-talkie on the day he kidnapped Sally? After Harry went through all the trouble of following David's ransom note instructions and even robbing his own bank, why didn't David follow through and tell Harry where the next note was? The answer, sadly, is that by then it was too late. David already knew that Harry had contacted the authorities. Local journalist George Sample told Forensic Files that he had been listening to the police scanners on June 17th. Over the scanner, George learned that something was going on at the town plaza, the location of David's bookstore, and the church parking lot where Sally was abducted. In typical journalistic fashion, George headed over to investigate, but he didn't see any police officers, which was, of course, because police officers were keeping the information about Sally's kidnapping under wraps, since they didn't want Sally's kidnapper to know that the authorities had been involved. But George had no idea, so he went into David's bookstore in search of answers and asked if David knew what was going on in the plaza. When David was confused, George explained that the police scanner said the cops knew something criminal was happening in this area. That was how David knew that Harry went to the authorities. George later said, At the time that I was talking to him, I didn't know that he had killed her, so I did not make a connection that here was a cold-blooded murderer sitting in front of me. With the words of one unwitting journalist, David knew his elaborate kidnapping scheme was over, so he never contacted Harry at the railroad underpass. And he killed Sally. Throughout David's arrest and the ongoing investigation, his wife Patricia maintained that he was innocent, as she felt the evidence the police gathered wasn't enough to find her beloved husband guilty. She told the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, This is just an unbelievable farce. Once they have a likely scapegoat, they forget all other leads. It appears to be similar to John's murder in 1971. She also told reporters, David is not the kind of man to do anything like this. He's kind and generous. He would do anything for anybody. He has done a lot of things anonymously to help other people. This is 180 degrees off the mark. But Patricia later said that on the afternoon Sally was missing, David told her he was in the nearby city of Erie. He was supposedly meeting with real estate agents until 6 p.m., but Patricia didn't know the real estate agents' names or how to contact them. When the Gazette asked Patricia if the Copenheffers were having money troubles, she responded, Money is tight, there is no denying it but no tighter than we expected it to be. Business had been better than we expected it to be at this time. We're not millionaires, but we didn't expect to be millionaires. We expected to lose money the first year. When asked about the two denied business loans, Patricia said that David told her he'd never heard back from Harry's bank, and they had later gone to a different bank and gotten approved. On June 23rd, three days after David's arrest, Patricia visited him in jail, telling the media, He's doing as well as can be expected. He's still bewildered and questioning why this is happening. It was at this point that Patricia stopped cooperating with the authorities. Patricia wasn't the only one flabbergasted by David's arrest. Many of his colleagues and neighbors were certain David was innocent. The Dayton Daily News said these people considered David to be a good dad, who showed up late for work some Saturdays because he spent time watching cartoons with his son. 
the Copenhagen's church friends described David as outgoing and friendly, saying that he would give you the shit off his back and had a very positive outlook on life. These people never expected violence from David, but others weren't shocked at all. According to the Dayton Daily News, while David's friends thought he was the ultimate family man, his actual family members considered him the ultimate family embarrassment, a bad memory they want to forget. David's uncle said that after the John Calkin murder acquittal, the Copenheffers disowned him as they believed he was no good, and other relatives said they also wanted nothing to do with David. One such relative said, He just didn't fit in with the family. I don't think anybody wanted to keep in contact. On July 19, 1988, David was charged with murder, terroristic threats, and unlawful restraint, charges for which he faced the death penalty if found guilty. Authorities had waited so long to charge David with murder because they wanted to be certain they had enough evidence to prosecute him accordingly. Since David was already in jail for Sally's kidnappings, the authorities weren't worried about him fleeing as they thoroughly investigated him, and so they slowly and methodically gathered the strongest case possible against him. David's defense team put together a wild story. In the preliminary hearing, David's attorney said, the murder charges should be dropped and David should only be tried for kidnapping. The attorney asserted that Sally somehow escaped her kidnappers and then just so happened to run into somebody else who murdered her. Of course, the judge didn't buy it, and David remained in jail, awaiting his trial. Then, on September 22, 1988, David was charged with two additional counts, criminal solicitation to commit murder and criminal conspiracy to commit murder. These counts, however, were not directly tied to the act of Sally's murder. They came because while in jail, David had asked two inmates to kill Harry Weiner and Kim Kelly. Harry and Kelly, one of the lead FBI agents, were key witnesses in the trial, so David wanted them eliminated. One month later, on October 17, 1988, David's wife Patricia was arrested on charges of attempting to intimidate a witness. She had placed two threatening advertisements in the Erie newspaper, which were quoted threats against David Verosco and his family. Verosco was one of the two inmates who David had tried to hire to kill Harry Weiner and FBI agent Kim Kelly. The first ad Patricia created was addressed to Cecil and was signed, Your Aunt. Cecil was Verosco's nickname, and Patricia was known to Verosco as Aunt Pat. The full ad said, Cecil. We know you are between a rock and a hard place. They forced you to go along and tempted you with a great prize. Now if you turn on sunshine and tell the truth, you're afraid they will back out and hurt you. But do not fear. The man in charge will not let them. Let's stick together and we all win. Your aunt. The second threatening ad was published a week later. It was addressed to Grasshopper, another of Verosco's nicknames, and read, Grasshopper, did you a favor with the kids? Agree to meet with a representative. We're counting on you. According to Verosco, he received two additional greeting cards with similar messages. Patricia had used a fake name, address, and telephone number to purchase the ads, but when investigators showed an employee at the newspaper company a lineup of photos, the employee picked out Patricia as the person who had placed the ads. A year later, a jury found Patricia guilty of a misdemeanor, but not a felony. During the trial, Patricia admitted that she did indeed place the ads, but she did not intend for the ads to be intimidating. Of course, it's likely Patricia was lying. 
why would she have used fake information to place the ads if she felt they were friendly messages? Patricia was sentenced to two years in prison with a $500 fine. Meanwhile, David was awaiting his trial in prison. In December of 1988, David tried to snitch on his fellow inmates to earn a reduced sentence. He spoke with the district attorney, but the DA wasn't impressed with David's intel, which was detailing discussions of criminal activity and demonstrations of criminal techniques. Frustrated, the district attorney asked if David had ever done anything similar to what he was accusing the other inmates of. In response, David admitted they had discussed Bobby Kennedy's assassination on its anniversary, and when other inmates wondered how Kennedy had lived so long after being shot in the head, David told them, the way to do it is to make sure, when you make the shot, that the medulla is not severed. That would cause the person to linger on in a coma. Then, David placed his hand on the back of his head to demonstrate how the shot would be made. This information is very interesting, considering that Sally was shot in the head the exact same way, as confirmed by the pathologist's prediction that she may have been in a coma before dying. Later, at the trial, these statements were introduced as evidence by the prosecution. David's trial began in late February of 1989. It was a high-profile case, so they had to switch from an eerie area courthouse to one in Pittsburgh, and the jury was also sequestered. When the trial began, the prosecution's case was clear. David was upset with Harry Weiner for denying his business loans and not cashing his insurance check. And as a result, David had kidnapped Sally for both revenge and financial gain. When his plans didn't pan out, David was forced to kill Sally. Based on all the evidence investigators had accumulated, especially the detailed plans, ransom notes, and phone call scripts found on David's computer, David was found guilty of both kidnapping and killing Sally Weiner. David's defense attorney's arguments were weak. They claimed David was with his wife during Sally's murder, which didn't stand in court as his wife was at that moment in prison for helping David with other crimes. The defense also argued that the evidence on David's computer was planted using special equipment. As a last-ditch effort, they also cast suspicion on Harry Weiner, who had recently become engaged to a new woman less than a year since Sally was killed. Wasn't that too soon to move on from the death of your wife? The defense proposed that Harry plotted to kill Sally and frame David by planting the evidence on his computer. Harry later told the Associated Press that he was upset by the defense's claims that he had something to do with Sally's death, but that he could live with these sort of attacks as long as justice is done. David took the stand and testified that he had nothing to do with Sally's kidnapping or murder. He explained that his fingerprints were found on the ransom notes because he found the blue bag in the bank parking lot before Harry and followed the trail of clues on his own, reading the notes as he went. He claimed that at the same time, he drew a rough map of the area and roughly copied some of the instructions he found. David did all of this, supposedly because he wanted to help Harry. Even if that story was believable, he didn't successfully address the human flesh and ammo residue on his pants. The green duct tape, the metal rods, the white crepe paper, or any other evidence that so clearly tied him to the crime. The district attorney, Brad Folk, later told Forensic Files, David Copenheffer is a master manipulator. It was an intellectual game to see how far he could push the system and get away with it. When asked about why David still maintained he was innocent, Folk said, That's the arrogance of the man. 
that despite overwhelming evidence as to his guilt, they still refuse to accept responsibility for the crimes they've committed. On March 21, 1988, after deliberating for more than six hours, the jury found David guilty on all charges, and on May 3rd, David was given the death penalty, sentenced to die in the electric chair. As a result, his charges for putting a hit on Harry Weiner and the FBI agent were dropped as there was no possible higher sentence than he had already received for his crimes. Since David and Patricia were both in jail, their son went to live with other relatives in Ohio. Following David's conviction and sentence, he tried to appeal many times. One time, he said that the police illegally intruded on his right to privacy when they reconstructed his deleted computer documents. Ultimately, all of his appeals were denied, and on March 18, 1991, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania reaffirmed David's death sentence. Years later, the death sentence was briefly overturned due to a technicality, but it was reinstated once more in 2012. David may have continued to file petitions and appeals for his release, but he didn't get the chance. On January 20, 2013, 65-year-old David died in prison from natural causes. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast and enjoyed this episode, please review us on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It's a big help. Follow us on our social media. We're active on Twitter at truecrime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash truecrimecases with Lainey, and Instagram at truecrimecaseswithlaney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Andrea Marshbank. Content editing by Jesse Hawk. Produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com. 